Today's podcast comes from a sermon presented by our late brother in Christ, Johnny Ramsey. As one of his favorite sermons to preach, Brother Ramsey addresses the joy of Christianity. Join Johnny as he takes a special focus on the book of Philippians, breaking down the purpose, pattern, prize, and power in Christ that is expounded in this deeply encouraging book. The joy of Christianity is one of the major themes of the New Testament. Without a doubt, the book of Philippians underscores that better than any other section of the Bible. In Romans 14, 17, the apostle Paul wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. In Romans 5, 5, we read that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. And Romans 15, 13 is an entreaty that thrills my soul. We're saved by hope. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote to Titus on the wicked island of Crete and said, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Years ago, as a young preacher, I was called one Saturday to preach the funeral, the first funeral I was ever asked to preach, for an older brother. I hadn't lived in that town very long, but I'd heard good things about him. I'm being honest when I tell you it just scared me almost to death myself to think about preaching a funeral. I'd never done that. And then I decided I would turn to the book of Philippians, which had always encouraged me and had given me peace, and share it with the people that day and let the Bible do the talking. It was one of the wisest decisions a young preacher ever made. And from that day, many, many years ago, I've continued to enjoy the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians has four chapters in it and one main point per chapter. Chapter 1, verse 21, Christ is the purpose of my life. Chapter 2, verse 5, he's the pattern of my life. Chapter 3, verse 14, he's the prize of the Christian's life. And chapter 4, 13, he's the power of the Christian life. I can do all things through Christ who empowers me. There are so many brilliant, beautiful, encouraging things about the book of Philippians. Paul is in prison in Philippi. He wrote half the New Testament, and half of the half that he wrote, he wrote in prison. Instead of being discouraged by such events of being incarcerated, he used the time to glorify God. And what he wrote in those prison cells in the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago continued to live on and reverberate around the world. And the book of Philippians is probably the favorite book of nearly every New Testament student. I really believe if I lined 100 people up against the wall and asked them what is your favorite book in the New Testament, 75% of them would say Philippians. It's that kind of book. A letter of praise, a peace, peace passing understanding, Philippians 4, 7. You see, Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. He made peace through the blood of his cross, Colossians 1, 20. His gospel is the gospel of peace, Romans 10, 15. And at his birth, angels said, peace on earth among men in whom he's well pleased, Luke 2, 14. And the book of Philippians, in a very exciting way, conveys and portrays the depth and intensity of the life of a child of God. In Philippians 1, the first five verses, Paul writes to his beloved brethren in Philippi and says he counts them his joy and crown, and he thanks God uh, every day and mentions them in prayer. 
And he rejoices that they, the Philippians, had fellowship with him in the gospel from the first day even until now. Now let's pause and get the background of this book. Are you aware of the fact that Acts is the history book of the New Testament? In it will be found the background for many of the epistles which follow. Let me illustrate. Before you read one verse of the sixth chapter book of Galatians, read Acts chapters 13 and 14, where on the first evangelistic tour, the kingdom of God was established in that region. And when you turn to Acts 16, you find the background of the book of Philippians. You might remember in Acts 16 the story of Lydia out by the seaside with those women who worked with her. She was a quite wealthy woman, and there was no Jewish synagogue in this Roman colony, Gentile city, but they were still worshiping God out by the seaside. And Paul and Silas resorted thither and taught her the word of God. She opened her heart to truth and became the first fruits of the gospel of Christ in that part of the Roman Empire. Now, after that, a young damsel with a spirit of divination followed Paul and Silas around and incessantly said, These men be servants of the Most High God. But our Heavenly Father doesn't want ill-advised people advertising His work, just like Jesus didn't want the demons who followed Him around and said, Jesus, thou Son of God. He didn't want uh, advertising from the devil's sources. So this evil spirit was cast out of this woman, and her owners who made uh, gain financially from her ways and from her ability to persuade people were incensed against Paul and Silas, trumped up false charges, had them cast in prison, in the innermost prison. And at midnight, instead of complaining and murmuring and whining, Paul and Silas sang praises to God at midnight, and the prisoners heard them. They prayed fervently to God and praised Him in song. James 5.13 says, Is any merry among you? Let him sing psalms. And they practiced what the Bible preaches. You remember an earthquake came and loosed all the prisoners' bands, and it looked like they would all escape, and the warden of that Roman prison knew his life was at stake if he let any of them escape, and he was fearful for his own life. And he sprang in and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, for how can they believe in him of whom they've never heard? Romans chapter 10 asks haughtingly. They preached the word of God to him. He washed their stripes, indicating repentance. He had placed them there unmercifully. And then, though it was past midnight, somewhere between his house and the jailhouse, he was baptized into Christ. Years ago, I saw a picture of the back door of that old prison in Philippi that's dilapidated and falling to the ground. But the back door opened on within five yards to the river, perhaps the river where Lydia had been baptized. So perhaps out that back door into that river, the man went with the one who would immerse him and was baptized into Christ and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And so the consummation of the entrance of the gospel into Philippi, from whence we get the book of Philippians. And so he writes to these brethren and says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You've had fellowship with me in the gospel from the first day until now. I feel sorry for preachers who've never had close comradeship among brethren. I've known some preachers that never preached in a place they liked, and I've known congregations that never liked a preacher that was in their midst. That isn't the way it ought to be. I've been especially well-treated for a half a century now preaching the gospel. I have dear friends in the Lord, congregations that support and help. There are places where I worked years and years ago. If they knew I needed anything to spread the gospel, all I'd have to do is write them or call them, and they'd send the funds. 
And that's the way it ought to be because they believe I preach the truth and they want to support the truth. And I don't mind asking supporters of the truth to support it some more. And that's the way Paul and the Philippian church got along. And that's the way it ought to be. The church at Thessalonica was another high point in his life. And he mentions that in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians. The Philippians were people who had been born out of persecution, out of the jailhouse, if you please. And that nucleus of faithful brethren continued to support the word. In chapter 4, he will say, you have uh, said to me from the very first beginning, you're still having fellowship with me in the gospel. Galatians 6, 6 says those who are taught the truth should support the one teaching them the truth. Communicate with one another. Have mutual distribution. One teaches, the other supports. 1 Corinthians 9 says it's proper, scriptural, and right for those who preach the gospel to live the gospel. Some brethren, though, are stingy and non-evangelistic. Others, like Philippi and Thessalonica, spread the glad tidings and support those who help them do it. And then in Philippians 1.10, we have a rare statement that I believe is the greatest single verse in the Bible on Christian living. We're told that we're to approve those things which are excellent, not things that are doubtful or questionable, that are second best, but approve things that are excellent. Have a premium on the things that count. Have the proper priority system. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Such beautiful, powerful words. And then in Philippians 1, as we begin reading through verses 16, 17, and 18, we have a passage that has filled some people with consternation, but it should not. Paul said, I know there's some who preach Christ out of contention. But he said, I'm still thankful Christ is preached. Now that doesn't mean we enjoy denominational preachers who just mention the name of Jesus. For Jesus said, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. He's simply saying, when Christ is preached, and in Acts 8, twice we read of Philip preaching Christ, and when people heard Christ preach, they were baptized into Christ. They understood the nature of the kingdom of Christ. I believe Paul is saying, some people who preach the truth do it contentiously. Some do it in a brutal way, but I'm still glad the truth is preached. I'm thankful for every gospel preacher ever lived, even if they had a personality or an attitude problem that uh, was regretful, because at least the gospel of Christ was preached. And that's the point he's making there. We need to train our children to love the truth so much that even if a contentious brother preaches the truth, we're answerable for the truth he preaches. I don't care who preaches the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, what his personality may be, how he parts his hair if his tie matches his socks, if he went to college or to a two-room country schoolhouse. If he preaches Christ, I'm grateful for that. Paul said, I preach Christ and him crucified that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. Now, men who do have contentious spirits and bad personalities and a warped view of their work will give answer for that themselves, but will answer for the truth they taught. That's what he's saying. And then he comes to the real heart and core of chapter 1. I, I remember the first time I really read the Bible for myself and started noticing every word. Philippians 1.20 probably troubled me more than any other verse because I misunderstood its emphasis. Paul said, I pray that through my body Christ may be magnified. My first thought was, how can Christ be greater than he is? He's already perfect. 
As the old country preacher said, you can't be more perfecter than that. Well, what does that mean? I pray that through my body Christ may be seen more clearly than he otherwise would be seen by people who've never heard of him. We need to so live that we communicate Christ in our lifestyle and cause people to say, I want to know about that one that's changed your life. And then verse 21 is the punchline of chapter 1 of Philippians. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As a younger preacher, I said, Christianity is a great way of life. Then I said, Christianity is the best way of life. But I don't say that anymore. I say Christianity is life, and that more abundantly. John 10, 10. You really don't know what life is all about if you're not a Christian. If you don't really follow in the footprints of Jesus, you miss spend a lot of your time on earth. For to me to live is Christ. He is the purpose of my life. Why are we on earth? Because of Christ. What are we to do on earth? Glorify Christ. What is our future? To go home to be with Christ. For to me to live is Christ. And then in verse 23, and these were some of the verses I used in that first funeral uh, sermon I was telling you about. Paul said, I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. See, for the child of God, death is not an enemy, but an angel that transports us near to the heart of God. Later in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, he will say, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, who shall fashion our vile body like in his glorious body. But I'll tell you the most misunderstood and overlooked verse in Philippians 1 is Philippians 1.29, and I believe we have a method in our madness in overlooking it. It says we're not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. We're not very well acquainted with suffering and persecution and tribulation, but the church of our Lord grew faster and did more good when it was being intensely persecuted in the first century than ever has since. When we seek to avoid persecution by watering down the gospel and straddling the fence and compromising and trying to please men, we hinder its progress. We're not only to believe on him, but to suffer for his sake. Have you ever noticed our public prayers? We are thankful we're not molested and we pray it will ever be so. And we ought to be praying when we are molested as Christians because we live like Jesus who was crucified, help us to remain faithful anyway. We even have a song that has a stanza in it that we sing in the assembly sometimes. May thy congregation escape tribulation. But Acts 14.22 says of the first Christians, with much tribulation they entered the kingdom. And the last beatitude in Matthew 5 says, Blessed are you, happy are you, when men shall persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Our prayer should be, Lord, when persecution comes, because we stand strong for truth like Jesus did, may we remain faithful and loyal and never deny the faith. Be faithful in the face of death if we had received the crown of life. Revelation 2, verse 10. Didn't Jesus say in John 15, If the world has hated me, the world will hate you. If the world has persecuted me, the world will persecute you, because the servant is not greater than his Lord. And the time will come, Jesus continues in John 16, when they'll cast you out of synagogues and put you to death and think they're doing God's service. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. And then 2 Timothy 3.12, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this name. 1 Peter 4.16, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into manifold trials, Knowing the proving of your faith work of patience. James 1 verse 2. 
Where is the person then, knowing these Bible truths, who will continue to pray that we never be molested and that uh, persecution never comes to us? Persecution refined the early Christians, deepened them in the things of God, made them count the cost and pay the price. And that's why they were so noble and why they grew by leaps and bounds like a burning fire, a spreading flame, as one historian spoke of the early church. And then we come to chapter 2. Many people believe that chapter 2, 1 through 11, is the most fascinating section in the whole Bible and all the epistles of the New Testament, the 21 books on how to live the Christian life, Romans through Jude. The Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is the high watermark. He tells us in verse 5, and I count this the greatest definition of what a Christian is in all the Bible, have the mind of Christ in you. That's the most difficult maxim to fulfill, to have the mind of Christ. He loved his enemies, prayed for those who crucified him. And some of us don't even love one another. He was the epitome of perfection in every realm, and his response to his enemies, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, Luke 23, 34, then made provision for them to hear the gospel so they might be forgiven, so that his prayer might be answered, Acts 2.38, that you'll ever find anywhere the right attitude even toward enemies. There's something bad wrong when we pray for things the Bible doesn't authorize and don't pray for specific things the Bible commands. I have in mind Matthew 5.44, pray for your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And in 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, Christians were exhorted to pray for the very rulers that had imprisoned them and would soon put them to death. That you, Christians, while on earth, may lead a peaceful and tranquil life in all godliness. Sometimes we get the Bible upside down. We're not willing to pray for the things the Bible tells us to. And so Jesus was the epitome of the kind of mind we ought to have. Have the mind of Christ in you. What a challenging verse that is. And then it describes what the mind of Christ was. He emptied himself, took on him the form of a man and was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and hath given him a name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Father sent the Son, the best heaven had, and Jesus willingly came to suffer and bleed and die for sinful, shameful, hell-bound men. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we read in uh, so many passages like Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20, 25, that Jesus came not to serve but to, not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for all. And 1 Timothy 2 says there's one mediator between God and men, himself, man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for our sins. He paid the price. He's the high priest who shed his own blood once and then the world to put away sin. Hebrews 9, verse 26 through 28. Have the mind of Christ in you. And then the heart and core of Philippians 2 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and complaining, that you may be the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of truth. See the evangelistic fervor that goes with living the Christian life, with working with God to the salvation and redemption of mankind, and to the encouragement and growth of fellow Christians. 
I believe chapter 2 of Philippians, verses 12 through 16, forms the heart and core, the Magna Carta of Christian living. We're to work with God under the salvation of souls. And we're to never murmur and complain. We're not to whine. And then we're to so live that our example will draw other men to Christ. Be a magnet that draws men out of the world into a sacred relationship with the Son of God. But you know, back in chapter 2, verse 5, when he said, have the mind of Christ in you, I guarantee you the Philippians were just like people are today. They probably started seeking excuses for how they couldn't do that. And so Paul, understanding with the Holy Spirit guiding his writing, realized the people would say, we can't have the mind of Christ. He was divine and we're human. And he said, well, let me tell you about two human beings that you know real well that have the mind of Christ. Epaphroditus, who was sent by you brethren in Philippi to take care of my needs in a financial way and encouragement of personal friendship, and Timothy, that you well know, who is like no other man that I am acquainted with. How is he different, Paul? He cares not for the things of himself, but for the kingdom of God. What a rare individual who is so unselfish he puts the Lord and his kingdom above his own personal pleasure and comfort. So Timothy, a human being, had the mind of Christ in him. The Lord never commanded us to do something we're incapable of doing. You and I can be Christ-like too, if we really want to. The word Christian, Christian, means one who belongs to Christ, one who is a part of Christ, and as a result, he'll follow Christ. And 1 Peter 2, 21 and 22 says, We're to follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was God found his mouth. And as much as is possible with us, we're to have the mind of Christ, walk in his footsteps, live for Jesus, and draw men to God through a Christ-like existence. Philippians 3 is an unusual chapter. It's a blend of negative and positive. Paul said there are some enemies of the cross of Christ in your midst probably talking about the Judaizing teachers who tried to bind the law of Moses upon people saying you can't be a Christian until you first pass through the channels of Judaism. And he said they crucified the Lord of glory afresh. They're emphasizing carnal temporal things instead of spiritual matters. He said, I've told you this before and I warn you again. There's nothing more difficult to deal with than enemies of the Lord that creep in unawares into the body of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 2 and the little one chapter book of Jude speak of people who come in privately and they have an agenda to disrupt and undermine the cause of Christ. He said, I've warned you about this before. They're so sensual and earthy and devilish, they're not spiritually minded and you need to beware of them. No false teacher ever marched down Main Street with a red banner in his hand saying, I'm a false teacher, watch out for me. But devious and dubious and uh, very sly and behind the scenes, they maneuver their way into a place where they can undermine the cause of Christ. And even in the wonderful congregation of Philippi, such were present. But it's Philippians 3, 4 through 11 that really is the heartbeat of Paul's life and the real stressed material of this book, emphasized. Paul said, I know there's some among you, Judaizing teachers, who boast of their background, their lineage. Well, if they have something to boast of, I'm more. You see, he had said at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the two noted rabbis in the history of Orthodox Jewry. And he said, I have all the credentials. I came from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the law, blameless. But what things were gained for me, 
those I counted lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, which is by the law, but a righteousness which is by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. But he said, Brethren, I'm not yet apprehended, attained, laid hold, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I love that passage, that I may know him. In 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul said, I know whom I have believed. It's not enough to know the what of Christianity. We must know the whom of Christianity. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I believe the single greatest weakness of many, many, many members of the church around the world is they're not like Christ. They're not striving to be like Christ. They don't really know Christ. They know some phantom they dreamed up that never existed. When they think of Jesus, they think of Leonardo da Vinci's picture with a sort of a sissy-like, effeminate, long-haired man, and that's the very opposite of Bible teaching. The point is we need to know the Lord and what made him tick. He knew what was in man. John 2.25, we need to know him. And then at the end of chapter 3, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for the Savior, who shall fashion our vile body like unto his glorious body. In Acts 1.11, angelic host comforted the apostles, saying, This same Jesus, whom you've seen going to heaven, shall so come in like manner as you've seen him go. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says we comfort one another with these words. What words, Paul? That when Christ comes, we'll meet him in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's something to look forward to. And the last statement of the Bible says, even so come Lord Jesus. We sing a song, this earth is not my home, I'm just a traveling through, but we act like we're going to be here forever with all of our materialistic possessions, our emphasis upon secular mundane things. But we're pilgrims and sojourners, 1 Peter 2.11. And like Abraham, we look for a better country that isn't heavenly, Hebrews 11.16. The great apostle Paul said, We know if this earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Never forget that, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Now to the grand finale of this rich and noble book of Philippians. Philippians 4, cited by many as the most powerful chapter in all the Bible to encourage Christians, and I would not argue with that. Maybe Romans 8 would tie it, but Philippians 4 is rich in the reservoir of hope and joy and peace that belongs to children of God. Philippians 4, 4, remember who writes this, a man in prison under wicked, despotic, tyrannical Nero Caesar. And he in prison writes to brethren who are free, and he the prisoner Shackled and bound, says rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known to all men, the Lord's at hand. In nothing be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Have you ever read such contentment and inner peace from a fellow imprisoned by a very tyrannical ruler? Later he will say in Philippians 4.22, there are even saints in Caesar's household. He helped penetrate the citadel of the ruler. And the gospel has such power, it could convert even some of Caesar's household. No wonder he was rejoicing. This was just a temporary matter, being imprisoned. 
And if he died in prison, he'd go home to a better place. He believed that old song, God's tomorrow will be brighter than today. And he knew if he would overcome, he could come over to live with God, Revelation 3.21. So what was there to worry and fret about? And he tells them to rejoice in the Lord. There was a poet about 100 years ago named Lovelace who wrote these words, which Paul believed in practice before Lovelace was born. Stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. He was more free in prison than most people are out of prison because he trusted in God. Have you ever noticed how he introduces many of the books he writes, the ones he writes from prison especially? He said, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say a prisoner of the Roman Empire, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He means I wouldn't be in prison were it not for my relationship with Christ. I didn't rob a bank or murder someone or break some laws. I'm in prison because I'm a Christian. So I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, I'm free as I can be. In 2 Timothy 2, 9, from prison, he said, but the word of God is not bound. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, 1, he asked the brethren in Thessalonica to pray that the word of God might run and have free course. Do you understand this salient truth? Paul wrote seven of the New Testament books while in prison. And the work of that prisoner inspired the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years has circled the world. Oh, he was shackled and bound and fettered, but the word of God he wrote has been spread around the world for 2,000 years and will stand till the judgment day when we're judged by the scriptures, Romans 2, 16, John 12, 48. So who was really imprisoned? I'd say Nero Caesar was. Oh, Nero had him put to death in about the year 67 or 68, and then six months later, Nero committed suicide, probably still ashamed of what he had done. But the point is, this fellow was as free as he could be with the gospel of Christ in prison and the word he wrote that got out of prison and has circled the world ever since. Peace passing understanding. An inner tranquility the chaotic, frenetic world will never comprehend. A farmer put a sign up in his most beautiful pasture, the most verdant field he had. It said, I'll give this field to the first contented man I find. One hundred men applied for the field the first day. But they sent them all home scratching their head with this question, if you're content with what you have, why do you want my field? A Christian can be at peace with God and man and himself wherever he is, under any kind of circumstance. And we need to appreciate that that's one of the most beautiful, powerful, salient features of Christianity. Therefore, if you claim to be a Christian and you're always chaotic and frenetic and a worrywart, you might better reread your life in the Bible and find a way to find peace with God and man. It is incongruous for a person to say, I'm a Christian, and be known as a neurotic, psychotic, despotic worrywart. And some people are just that. But in Philippians 4, 8, he says, Whatsoever things are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and virtuous and of good report, think on these things. Well, that eliminates the motion picture industry, much of television, a lot of the sordid pornographic uh, literature, it eliminates all immorality, whether written or seen. We cannot think on things that are pure and holy if our mind is occupied with salacious, licentious debauchery. There isn't anything worse in all the world than a person who claims to be a Christian that fills his heart and mind and eyes with things that are filthy and ungodly and hellish. Think on these things. Yes, bring every thought into captivity unto Christ. Second Timothy, or Second Corinthians 10.5 Depart from iniquity, Christians are told in 2 Timothy 2.19. Abstain from all appearance of evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Keep thyself pure, 
1 Timothy 5.22. And our Lord says, as it rings down through the corridors of time, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8. Then in Philippians 4.11, he said, I've learned in whatsoever state or condition I'm in, therewith to be content. Whether I abound or am abased, whether I have plenty or nothing, inner contentment. There isn't anything greater than contentment. You can go to bed at night with a clear conscience. You can rise the next day to glorify God. Too many people forget the importance of peace of mind. In World War II, at the end of it, a Jewish rabbi who didn't believe in the New Testament, of course, or in Christ, wrote the best-selling book of all time up to that moment called Peace of Mind. It made him a multimillionaire. And yet, nearly everything in that book came from the Sermon on the Mount, from Jesus Christ, or from the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul a devoted Christian. And this fellow who didn't believe in Christ or the New Testament made a financial killing on a book that incorporated much of the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Philippians. You want peace of mind? You won't find it outside Christ. All spiritual blessings and heavenly places are in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. And he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3, 20. He left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and gladness, Acts 14, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights with, in, with whom there's no variableness, neither shadow cast but turning, James chapter 1, about verse 17 and 18. And in Acts 17, 29, in him we live and move and have a very being. We are indeed the offspring of God. How gracious and benevolently kind our Heavenly Father's been. We ought to be content. And then in Philippians 4.13, he is the power of my life. I can do all things through Christ who empowers me. One translation says, who gives me strength. In Christ is the success story of the ages. Outside of Christ, no hope. And then in Philippians 4.19, he sort of sums up everything we've studied by saying, our God will supply all our needs. Now, not all our luxuries or desires or wants, but he'll supply all our needs. The Lord taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, not our yearly luxuries. And then the top of the mountain verse, Philippians 4.22, as he comes to the end of this noble, rich book on Christian living and the joy thereof, he said, all the saints salute you, chiefly those who are Caesar's household. The gospel had found its way into the very palace of the king, the ruler, the emperor. Peace passing understanding. So the book of Philippians, which has its beginning really in Acts 16 on that evangelistic tour in a jailhouse, if you please, born out of adversity, becomes the jewel of Paul's work, his joy and crown. And they believe that Christ was the purpose of life, 121, the pattern of life, 2 verse 5, the prize of life, 314, and the power of life, chapter 4 verse 13. May God help us to resort to these beautiful, powerful pages more and more and undergird our life with the joy and peace that is found in believing. May we have a rich reservoir of righteousness to share with others because we put our trust in the living God who made heaven and earth. May God help us to be the Christians we ought to be.